0: Sounds like a good time to start Frank's pushed play on the recorder. So official good morning to our, our listeners and our viewers. It is Sunday morning, May 17th. And this is our study in Romans 5 to 8. We're calling the reign of life. And we are doing a slight excursus based on Romans six 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. The principle we're operating on is you cannot battle an enemy you don't understand. Remember those famous words from the Japanese um, military commander after they bombed Pearl Harbor? The Japanese military commander, I think, said, I fear that we have awakened a sleeping giant, and he was right. So if you're in union with Jesus Christ, it means you're at peace with God and correspondingly at war with sin. A sleeping giant has been awakened in you, and it's called indwelling sin. And we're doing this study because we can't, we're, we're hopeless to battle sin unless we understand it, how it operates. So that's, that's why we're doing this. You can access the handout on the webpage. It's the same one we used last week. What did I call it? Indwelling Sin, the Constant Conflict Within. And we are, uh, I'm sorry, the pages aren't numbered. But if you find the page that at the top, it's, it has Proverbs 22, 15, then scroll down that page, and we're going to start about two-thirds of the way down where it says, sin, when unchecked by common grace, produces violence and utter corruption. But let's pray together and ask the Lord to teach us. Lord, we're so grateful for this day, your promises of mercy and love, your faithfulness to us shall never leave or forsake us. Thank you for sending your spirit to teach us. Apart from him, We're blind and we're dull and we're groping around hopelessly and helplessly, but we have the Spirit of Christ, the risen Christ. He dwells in us to assure us that we belong to you, to comfort us, and to be the one who leads us into all truth. So Holy Spirit, come and inform our minds renew and make our hearts tender to the things of your word. Use your word to shape us more into the image of Jesus. Use your word to show us ourselves. Use your word to equip us in this relentless battle with sin. We woke up this morning at war with sin. Sin is at war with us. We will battle to the day we die. And we want to do so in the strength and the grace and the wisdom and the truth and the power you supply. So give that to your precious people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Thank you. Uh, don't forget to mute yourself. Uh, it sounds like all of you have done that. And uh, special welcome to Jimmy Hessler, uh, the Hessler's son in Miami. Jimmy, we're grateful you're with us and anyone else joining as well. So we're on the handout. It's the bottom of the page that at the top has Proverbs We're beginning. We're just doing this study of the nature of sin. You can't battle an enemy you don't understand. This point we're making is that when sin is unchecked by common grace, it produces violence and utter corruption. Common grace is the doctrine that God, because he is so good and has a benevolent love for his creation and his creatures, good and bad alike, himself restrains evil from being all it could be in the hearts of human beings. The only reason the earth is not as bad as we're gonna read about it here in Genesis 6-5 is the grace of God. God is the one restraining it. Jesus alludes to common grace when he says uh, in Matthew, God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Bad evil people get good things from God by common grace. So here's a situation that preceded the flood where God apparently withdraws his hand from the earth, withdraws that hand of restraining evil, and this is This is what human beings are in their best, as it were. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that the every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a dreadful place to be. That's what we would be without common grace. The reason unbelievers, us, the reason we're not as bad as we could be, is common grace. And notice there in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. That may tell us that when God withdraws his hand of restraint, human beings end up destroying each other. This would be a frightful place to live. Thank God he rescued Noah and his family to preserve the human race, to preserve his promise, to bring from the seed of the woman, the one who would crush the serpent on the head. First Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. I have this person here for that last phrase that you can get to the place where your conscience, that built-in mechanism God has given to human beings, to intuitively know right and wrong, Paul talks about how this functions <coughs> even in those in Romans two. Even in those who have no access to the law of God, there's this internal sense of right and wrong. Well, that conscience can be seared, cauterized, burned, so that you're impervious to the evil of what you're doing and the results of it. Again, a terrifying place to be. It is our uh, privilege and responsibility of Christians to have our consciences continually informed by the Word of God so that we're conforming our lives, our thoughts, our hearts, our affections to the Word of God. You may not know something is, is wrong because the Word of God hasn't informed your conscience with respect to it. Next thing I want to point out, don't forget to mute yourselves, guys, is that sin distorts your view of reality. And here I'm borrowing from a wonderful evangelical British uh, commentator named Alec Motir. He has a book on, uh, based on Genesis called Look to the Rock, and I found his commentary on the fall and particularly its implications socially for Adam and Eve to be profoundly helpful. I use this in my uh, pre-marriage material and teaching on marriage. So I'm stealing right from Alec in here because I don't think I could say it any better. So notice how he describes the, the presence of sin distorting Adam and Eve's view of reality and therefore everyone from Adam and Eve's own view of reality. He says, number one, Adam and Eve's openness to one another, that one fleshless they enjoyed in a sinless existence, is replaced by a secretive awareness of self and a desire to retire from the other, to hide and retreat, seeking protection from the gaze of the other. Once, they were joint sides of the same reality. The two shall become one flesh. Joint sides of the same reality. Now, two separate realities. They see the world on the basis of sin and disobedience instead of the basis of good and obedience, which obviously is the more desirable way to see it. They no longer are clothed in that righteousness, that moral glory in which God originally made them. That's been forfeited. Now they see the world in skewed terms. Second thing he points out, Their moral perceptions are clouded so that self-centered values overrule God-centered values. They acknowledge their sin, but they fail to come to grips with the seriousness of it. Moutier points out that had they come to grips with the seriousness of their sin, they would have begged God to banish them from his presence. That's a really profound thought. Never would have occurred to me to make that observation. But knowing the holiness of of, of God and their own sinfulness, when God, probably Jesus, walking in the garden came looking for them, uh, they should have said, stay away. We're completely unfit for your presence. Well, they're not dealing seriously with the consequences of sin. Three, they're now naturally afraid of God, right? They're hiding from their best friend. Their best friend has become their enemy. In their guilt, they have something to prove. I still belong here. They're staying. They have something to prove. And that means that The heart of human beings is still plagued with this thing in us that we have something to prove to God. Somehow we're worthy. Somehow we're good enough. That's why works righteousness is is the thing that infects all human hearts. And that's why all the world religions except Christianity are based on works righteousness. And then four, they find their sense of identity in self-protective blame shifting, right? The woman you gave me, the serpent deceived me versus each other's defenders. They're fearful instead of trusting, hiding instead of protecting, blaming instead of defending, making excuses instead of taking responsibility. I just, I find that immensely helpful. So think on that, study that, see how that may be descriptive of you and how God and Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit can rescue your relationships from these devastating effects of sin. Next point we want to move on to. How does sin work? You can't defeat an enemy you don't understand. Sin deceives and works covertly. I use the word deceive because Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What's the answer to that question? Who can understand it? No one without revelation from God. Only the person with God's word in front of them and the Holy Spirit teaching them, receiving light from God, that's the only person who can understand their heart. In our natural condition, we'll never come to that understanding. We don't even want to understand it. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There are those who, I think this is a, a, a sort of a commentary on that. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed from their filthiness. So as God sees them, maybe as other people see them, they're filthy. But they're not aware of that filth. They're clean in their own eyes. We have this amazing, innate, insatiable capacity to deceive ourselves about our own goodness. Mike, can I pause Yes. Can you ask them if they can hear you? Can you all hear me? Okay. Yes. Yes. Initially, I couldn't, but now I can't. Okay. Thank you. We, okay. Had to, we, had to, we had to run a check here. I got a thumbs up from Carrie. Okay. Thank you. Good. And yet, look, if there is a problem, feel free to um, interrupt me. Turn your sound on to interrupt me. Um, Romans 7, 11, we'll be getting to this eventually. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. I'll explain that later when we get there. But here's an allusion to the deceiving functioning of sin. Hebrews three twelve. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. He's writing to the Christian community, calling for personal watchfulness. Look at your heart. Examine your heart. There's to be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. What's one of the remedies to that? Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. In other words, constantly, every day. That none of you may be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. Sin is seeking to harden you constantly. How? By deceiving you. One of the ways it does that is it basically says to you, sin is desirable, righteousness is not. Sin is desirable, righteousness is not. Uh, I referenced a book last week by uh, uh, Phillips Brooks called um, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I think it's in the Banner of Truth pa- paperback series. And he says, one of Satan's desi- devices is to dress up sin in virtue's colors. Or Satan uh, shows you the bait but hides the hook. Anyway, that's just a slight digression on all of those things. Let's move on to the next one about, well, we're unpacking how sin deceives and works covertly. It magnifies other sins above our own. This is a great device to get our eyes off ourselves and onto other people. Jesus said, Matthew 7, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Okay, so why do you? So we're really good at finding fault with others while looking right past our own. And the, and the image says that others' faults, specks, are less significant than our own logs. We have this amazing capacity to look past our logs to detect specks in others. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, which is a fine thing to say, when there's a log in your own. And Jesus goes on to say, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly enough to help other people. So the best people helpers are those who are first dealing ruthlessly with their own sin. They approach other people with a sense, but for the grace of God, I'd be far worse than them. I could fall into that same sin In an instant, I'm not above anything. So you're dealing, first of all, with your own sin, and that creates a gentleness, a patience, a tenderness in dealing with other people's sins. Look, it's on the strength of Jesus being tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, that he can deal with us in the same kind of tenderness and and, uh, patience with our sins. How does sin deceive? It minimizes consequences. Who, oh, uh... Uh, Well, I I hope you read Proverbs 16 yesterday because there were two verses in Proverbs 16 that fit our study perfectly. Let me just retrace for a second and call them to your attention. 16.2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. There it is, this self-justifying tendency to cut ourselves slack, to believe we're in the right. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the spirit. In other words, the the Lord is ultimately the one who gets at our motives. And then you read later in Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Again, left to ourselves, we'll chart a way to live that seems perfectly reasonable, perfectly logical, suits us to a T. And yet, it's the end of death. So without revelation from God, without the correcting grace of the Holy Spirit, without God illuminating that path, we will rush headlong into death. Oh, how we need the Lord. We need him more than we know. Okay, sorry to backtrack. Let's go down to sin minimizes consequences. Who would ever gladly choose misery and death? You see this in the prologue of Proverbs, Proverbs 419. The wicked don't know for what they stumble. Isn't that a sad thing? to not know over what you're stumbling, when, when God's word sheds a light on our path, it shows us what we potentially stumble over. It shows us how to negotiate life's minds, battlefields, etc. And then when it speaks of the adulteress in Proverbs 5, her feet go down to death. She does not know it. It's a, it's a terrible place to live, that kind of ignorance. So sin creates a phantom righteousness while hiding our own righteousness. And here's Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of a man are appear in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. I'm calling this the tragic magic show, and I hope you can see my, uh, my diagram here. So here, here's the logic of the diagram. As we look at two things, ourselves, that says me, and God, Sin's deceptive nature functions in two ways. Sin both creates what is not and hides what is. That's what magic is, right? Magic is either creating an illusion of something that really isn't there, or magic seeks to hide something that is there. So it's the person that stands in front of the castle at Walt Disney World, and two seconds later, it's gone. He's hiding what's there. This is what sin does. And it, it, it both creates what is not and hides what's there with respect to me, to yourself, and to God. So let's work down the, as I look at myself and since deception is at work, what it's hiding, uh, what it's creating that is not true is what I'm just calling phantom righteousness. That I'm okay as I am. That I'm basically a good person. This is what humanism teaches. All people are basically good. Of course, that runs... Square in the face of biblical teaching. So sin creates what is not with respect to me. It creates this sense of goodness, phantom righteousness. It's it's not a real righteousness. And with respect to God, sin deceives by creating what is not. It basically uh, paints God as an ogre, someone that doesn't see, someone that doesn't care. Sin distorts the true picture of who God is. So do all the world religions, except for Christianity. There may be kernels of truth in those, but there's always a distortion. So sin deceives by creating what is not with respect to ourselves and God, and sin then hides what is with respect to ourselves and God. What does sin hide? What's going on? That in my heart I'm a mess, that there is this iniquity, this wickedness, this self-deception. Sin is hiding that from me, keeping me in a desperate state, until, until this deception is lifted by the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, this uh, is just a hopeless, helpless place to live. So sin deceives by hiding what is, it doesn't allow me to see the true nature, of the depth of my sin, and it hides the heart of God, which, if we saw it, we'd never want to leave his presence. Pure love, pure beauty, pure joy, pure loveliness. Psalm 16, the last verse. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. Your right hand pleasures forever. Who wouldn't want to be with that person in unbridled uh, fellowship forever? So sin uh, hides what is true about God, okay? This is a a terrible place to live. I think this is a faithful summary of these verses that we're looking at and we get this uh, picture of reality apart from special revelation. I'm going to move to the next point that sin is distinctly God-oriented. It has a God-focus in the sense we're elaborating on this side of the equation. Sin deceives me by uh, painting something God is not and hiding what God truly is. So we want to uh, emphasize next that sin is offensive to God. I mean, right, duh, but do we really believe that? Do we really believe? David confesses in Psalm 51. This is the first Psalm he wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and and Uriah and all that. Psalm 32 came second, Psalm 51. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There's an acute sense of the wrongness of sin, the evilness of sin, the offense of sin, to God, that's a, that's a good and a healthy place to be, to, to see sin as an offense to God. Sin is also, next page, motivated by atheism. R.C. <clears throat> Sproul wrote a book years ago uh, called If There's a God, Why Are There Atheists? And it was his response to, um, was it Freud who said, you know, we've sort of made up God because we have this father complex in us and everything. It's a great apologetic on what motivates atheism in the heart. And the scriptures talk about this. Psalm 1, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. And and what's the result of that life? They're corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there's none who does good. So what a connection between your lifestyle and your worldview. Psalm 4. in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Isn't that interesting? I think we'd have to say that in his heart of hearts, he's saying to himself, there is no God, but sin hides from us the fact that that is going on in our hearts. You might call that a subconscious dynamic in the heart. Our hearts are saying, there's no God. We're trying to justify it. We're trying to justify it. Although in our heart of hearts, we know there is a God, Paul tells us in Romans 1. I think it's the... um, uh, oh, one of the Christian apologists whose name is escaping now, escaping me now, Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson has debated some atheists over the years, and he said the atheists don't believe in God and they hate him. Okay, sin eclipses God, Psalm eighty-six, fourteen. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. They do not set you before them. So what would you look like if you set God before you? What do you look like when you don't set God before you? Well, one of the reasons we don't set God before us is because we don't want to be accountable. We don't want to be accountable to other people. If you set God before you, there's an immense sense of I'm accountable to this person. There is a just judge in the universe who holds everything to an account. They don't set God before them. Sin wants God's on its own terms. Next point, Psalm 94, 7. And they say the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. So one of the only ways we can get away with things that are unrighteous is to convince ourselves we can do it with impunity. God doesn't see. Psalm 50, 19. You gave your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I, the Lord, have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Do you see the dynamic motivating this? We, we projected onto God the fact that we don't want accountability. Therefore, God doesn't hold us accountable. You thought I was just like you. We need the word of God to disavow ourselves of all of our false impressions of who God is. We're to love God with all our soul, strength, heart, and Mind. We want to think truly about who God is. All other thinking is idolatry, right? What does God call you to believe about Him? Everything He's revealed about Himself, nothing more and nothing less. Anything else is idolatry. That's why we need to be taught the Word of God, reading the Word of God, soaking our hearts and minds in the Word of God. Next point: False gods increase sorrow. Psalm sixteen four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. We'll see how Paul picks this up at the end of Romans 6 when he asks you to be aware of the fruit of what your life was like when you were given your body over as instruments of unrighteousness. But that's, that's, that's an interesting thought. The sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. Translated, God doesn't want to bless disobedience because it's bad for you. So in in God's economy, uh, and we'll see this. i created another tangential handout on this on temptation. So when we're through this handout, we'll do a study on temptation. And then we'll get back into Romans 6 proper. But we'll see. um, I've lost my train of thought there. Okay. Lost my train of thought. Let's move on to spiritual adultery. James 4.4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So loving anything more than loving God is spiritual adultery. It's having a false lover. It's having a lover your heart was ultimately not made for. So it really requires you to ask, what is the spirit of the age in which I live? What are worldly values? What does it mean to be worldly? Those are things that we need to ask ourselves. We'll look more at that in the handout I've got coming on temptation. Sin is enmity with God. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. It's exactly what is, what is when you know God, you realize what? He should be honored, he should be thanked. Well, they did neither. But they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, Remember what we said about the word foolish biblically. Foolishness isn't a reference to your IQ. It's a refusal to reason accurately about the obvious. We live in a created world. You didn't create yourself. How could you possibly then live as if you're a self-created person? That's obvious. Foolishness is a refusal to reason according to the obvious. It's a main theme through the book of Proverbs. Um, Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So you appreciate the grace of God, you appreciate the glory of the gospel to the extent to which you understood yourself to be an enemy of God in your unconverted state. Sin turns a deaf ear to the pleadings of God. John 5.39, Jesus said to the to the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's a good thing. They do Bible studies. They're looking for eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Jesus says, I'm the ultimate interpretive key to all the scriptures. All the scriptures are about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Refuse. This isn't a case of mere ignorance. It's a case of willful refusal to come to Jesus. I don't receive glory from people yet, um, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So, So their unbelief is ultimately a deep, Heart problem of a refusal to be profoundly God seeking, God centered, God wanting to be glorified in their hearts. A whole lot more we could say about that. <clears throat> it's why people create designer gods, right? I like a little bit of this religion, a little bit of this religion, a little bit. So left to myself, I'll fashion a God that's completely according to my own liking. And the last point to make that uh, sin is God oriented is that it renders us dead to God and under his wrath. Uh, Paul refers to this at the beginning of Ephesians 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritual death, reference back to the promise in the garden, the day you eat of it, you will die. They died spiritually instantly. They would eventually die physically as a result of the entrance of sin into the world. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so what he does in the next few verses is he gives you kind of a functional definition of what spiritual death looks like, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." You're supposed to look at that and go, yuck, save me from this. Isn't it a mercy of God to spell out what spiritual death looks like? And then, beginning at verse 4, he says, but God. See, linguistically and thematically, verse 1 of Ephesians 2, and you, and then verse 4 begins, but God. My son wanted to put but God on his license plate after he heard this teaching years ago. But God, so God in response to this comes with mercy and grace. We won't unpack the rest of these passages, but I just wanted you to see how uh, a sin renders us dead, spiritually dead, and under his wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. That just doesn't mean we're angry at God. It means we're living in a way that is incurring God's wrath because in God's moral universe, wherever there's sin, it inevitably attracts judgment. It has to. Every sin will be punished. So it makes us all the more amazed that all of our sins were punished in the body of Jesus to set us free and to bring us into a state of peace with God and no condemnation and righteousness and joy and being completely acceptable to our Father through Jesus Christ. There you go, some good news this morning after all this awful stuff on sin. <laughs> okay, number five. We're, we're teasing out Romans six twelve. Don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies and you should obey its lust. Now we'll look at the little phrase, let not sin therefore reign. Uh, just point out a couple of things about sin. It's always ready to do its job. Always ready to spring into action. Romans 7, 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced to me all kinds of covetousness. I'll unpack this when we get to Romans 7, so hang on about exactly what that means. Look at this picture from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here's the stadium of saints who've run the race before us. They sat down, they're finished, they're crowned with glory and honor, and they fought sin to the death. They woke up at sin every morning of their lives. They battled sin until the day they died. And they're witnessing to the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, our need for the grace of God, for this victory. Here's this cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. See what the writer of Hebrews assumes? We have these things that weigh us down and sin clings closely. How do you run? Cast it off. I ran track in high school, not that I was any good. I never broke a tape. I wasn't fast, I wasn't any good. But I promise you this, when I step on the track to run around a number of times, I never put added weight on my body. I never had a winter coat on. You, know, you have this, you have the least amount of clothing as possible. You're stripping off anything that would hinder you from running. So let us, um, let us uh, run with endurance, meaning, fighting sin constantly, not giving in, run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And we'll see how looking to Jesus is the only way to to battle sin. And the only way, uh, the only way to, until you find Jesus more desirable than sin, you don't have a fighting chance. And then out of the heart springs what we say and do. You know this, but I'll just remind you from the words of Jesus, Mark 7.20, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. See, the Pharisees were concerned about you gotta clean your dishes, you gotta clean your hands, you gotta have everything externally clean. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, dead inside. No, you gotta look within. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. (laughs) All this is in the heart. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, when you really get that, you'll beg God for what? A new heart. Not just cleansing, but a new heart. And that's what God promised through Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. I'm going to come and I'm going to give you a new heart. Take that heart out give you a new heart and unfortunately well the reality is in our new hearts we still have those things wanting to come and have their say we've got to battle these to the day we die okay number six let not sin therefore reign in your in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions to make you obey its passions so think about this not every desire that you have needs to be fulfilled not every desire that creeps into your heart needs to be obeyed. What does it mean? It needs to be subjected to the desires God wants you to have. So sin is, is, is seeking to find delight in something. Proverbs two fourteen, The evil rejoice in doing evil. They rejoice in it. They delight in the perverseness of evil. They rejoice in it, they delight in it. They find pleasure in evil. Men whose paths are crooked, who are devious in their ways. James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Right? You can't say the devil made me do it. He's enticed by his own desire. So a desire creeps up. You don't have to obey that desire. Here's what James says. Each person is tempted when he's lured. And again, I'll have a whole separate handout on the nature of temptation because I think these kinds of verses require us to do that study. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Think of death there, not really as physical death, although sin came into the world and death through sin, physical death. But think of death as the absence of the life of God, absence of all that's right about the way God made it. Darkness, not understanding, giving yourself over to that which ultimately destroys you emotionally, personally, spiritually, cognitively, and, you know, theologically. That, that's the idea of death here, the absence of the life of God and all that characterizes the life of God. Great example from Hebrews eleven twenty four. 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he has this identity crisis. Who am I really? Am I gonna identify with Pharaoh and uh, uh, everything that's associated with that? No, he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I, th- I think there was a moment in time where he had to make a decision. What's more important to me? The design, every way I can indulge and find pleasure in Egypt, or uh, in, or identify with the people of God, be mistreated with the people of God, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So every sin promises a reward. God promises a reward. When we're when we're tempted, we need to stop and 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 weigh those two things out. I don't know if you remember the movie. Um, I think it was called Mr. Mom with Michael Keaton. Mr. Mom? And do you remember that movie? It came out in the, in, the, in, the, in the 80s. So Michael Keaton is a father who loses his job and his wife goes off to work, so he's stuck at home with the kids. The next-door neighbor lady is tempting him sexually. And there's this one scene that, that uh, he, he removes himself from the source of the temptation, and he stands in front of a mirror, and he just begins to talk through the implications of if he did this. Like he says, what if I had a heart attack and died in the middle of this? It was a really profound scene and it showed what we need to do. When sin entices us and God's ways are here, why would we give in, why would we refuse God? And, and uh, it, it's just a really helpful way. And look, sometimes not giving in to sin is bearing the reproach of Christ. It might be painful and you're forsaking the treasures of Egypt. You've got a greater reward on the other side. Okay, sin makes desires inordinate or over-desires. And here we're in James 4, chapter 1, verse 1. James asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why is there relational discord? Why can't you get along? Why are you constantly having a spat with your Spouse. Why do kids always at odds with their parents? Why, why can't people live in harmony and peace with each other? That's, so why? And he answers the question. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. There's the war we've talked about. Passions are at war within me. I want this. I want this. There's a war. You desire and do not have, so you murder Again, I don't think he's talking about literal murder. I think he's talking about acting towards ways in people that essentially say, I want you dead. Whether it's criticism or turning our back or turning a cold shoulder, acting as if they don't exist, treating them that way. Now, the verb in the beginning of verse two, you desire, is the, is the, is the verb we've seen uh, in our study for, for desire, passion. It's not the one at the beginning of uh, verse four, uh, chapter four, but it's the verb epi, I don't know if you can see the epi-semia. So themia is a Greek word for desire. When you put the prefix epi in front of it, that epi simply intensifies the meaning that follows. So this, instead of being desire, it's, it's passion, it's lust, it's over-desire, it's inordinate desire. It's having a desire for a good thing that becomes the only thing that you want. That's the verb that is there. It's the verb form of the noun epithemia at the beginning of verse two. You desire, you over-desire, and you don't have, so you commit murder. You covet. And, you, and I see those as parallel thoughts, over-desiring and coveting. And you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your passions. You could say a lot more about that. I'm going to move on in the last few minutes we've got. Top of the next page, sin opposes the spirit. It's kind of where we began our study about the nature of the war, Galatians 5.17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. There's no happy compromise here. There's like oil and water. They're just never going to go together. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Thank God, or we'd have... No hope. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Therefore, and we're going to see in the temptation outline, you should expect to be tempted. You should expect, when you start a significant endeavor for God, to be assaulted by Satan and by involving sin. You should expect that every desire for you in righteousness, to bear fruit, to do good, to honor Jesus, Maybe, maybe accompanied by an opposing force within you. I mean, think how many times you started out on a positive course. I'm going to spend more time reading the Bible. And, uh, and then you fell off that wagon. Why? There was a war going on inside that opposed that. And you didn't oppose the opposing. I mean, how else to explain it? Next thing, as we have two minutes. Uh, that is is to say that wherever there's temptation, you can assume Satan is inciting it. Satan is standing behind it. Satan is advocating for it. Satan doesn't make you sin. He tempts you to sin. He's delighted for you to sin. Uh, uh, This is a profound statement in 2 Timothy 3, talking about the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth. That's what you're hoping for when somebody's in error. That God grants repentance. It's got to come from God. God's got to set them free. God's got to release them. God's got to break in where we are stubborn and in darkness and enslaved to sin. If perhaps God grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. This is the prodigal son coming to his senses. What have I done? Let's go back to the father. Come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Yuck! unbelievers are in the kingdom of darkness. We're slaves to Satan, slaves to sin, slaves to Satan, held captive by him to do his will. What an awful thing. The sooner we see that and seek to be freed from it, the better. Christ has all the power to free us from that domain. Once you're freed from it, you got a moving target on your back. Satan wants to destroy you because he hates that you're now living in the reign of life. And finally, Acts 5, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They lied, you know, about the property that they sold, cut back some of the proceeds for themselves. They wanted to look better in the company of the righteous than they really were. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? So Peter is simply annexing, um, of course, they're sinful. They died on the spot for these sins but he's annexing the fact that Satan is right there lying. So when we're believing a lie about sin, you can assume that the liar, the destroyer, the deceiver is there doing the same. On that note, how grateful we are that we have the spirit of Christ who never lies to us, who gives us Jesus, who gives him in abundance, who leads us in the truth, who rescues us from ourselves, who will never let us go. So spirit of Jesus, fill our hearts to always be true to ourselves, to others, and to God. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their appetite for the word of God. Thank you for the battle that they're in with sin assured that there will be victory because of Jesus. We fight in territory that's ultimately been won by the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our hope, our Redeemer, our life, Jesus Christ. Fill my brothers and sisters and me with strength and power by the Spirit that we would not let sin reign in our mortal bodies that we should obey its lusts and give glory to God in thought, word, and deed. In his name, amen. Thank you all for joining us. We will uh, for sure finish this handout next week and start in on temptation. Thank you.